0: you're listening to Making Waves, a show about sound art on WGXC. I'm your host, Becca Sims. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with three sound artists whose work will be featured in a gathering of sound art, a Canadian sound art caucus taking place in Toronto, with concert programming by New Adventures in Sound Art. The Thursday, November 10th show at the Music Gallery features performances of Pathways by Sean Pinchbeck, Three improvisations with Trio à la Distancie by Nico Agnès and Requiem for Radio, Pulse Decay by Amanda Dawn Christie. On Friday, November 11th, Alliance Francaise co-presents Generating Electro, a concert featuring the fascinating artists and performers Miriam Bleau, who will perform Soft Revolvers, and Martin Messier, who will perform Field. I'll be speaking with Sean, Amanda, and Miriam. Let's go to the conversations. So Sean, your work Pathways is going to be presented by Nisa at the first evening concert at a gathering of Canadian sound art. And the piece is described as an improvised sound performance. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role of improvisation in this piece and your work as a larger whole.
1: Yeah, I, uh, for hmm, how long now, uh, I guess about 10 years or a bit more. Um, I've been working with improvising live with sounds. I have a collection of sounds that I've um, gathered myself. Uh, Some are soundscapes, some are field recordings of different kinds, some are noises, some are processed sounds that I pre-processed and and whatever. And I have uh, quite a large library of stuff. Um, And then in my performances, I've been... I've created my own uh, software in the Max MSP programming environment uh, where I can mix and process those sounds with my own effects that I've designed. And then, uh, so basically, I just have all the files all the time. <laughs> and uh, I uh, just start seeing what's in different folders and deciding what directions that this performance would go in um, based on you know, the types of sounds they are. And so if they're textural or high or low frequency or these sorts of, you know, attributes of the sounds. And then just based on where things are sounding at that moment, I, you know, mix sounds that are similar or different, depending if I want to change the direction of the performance at that moment. So in Pathways, getting back to your original <laughs> question, in this piece, I've kind of... Um, selected kind of a theme in this case, I don't always do that, um, about this, um, you know, travel and pathways and directions and changing moments. And it does fit with kind of how I compose, but also the types of sounds that I've been selecting are sounds that, uh, are of places or remind me of places or, um, there's like this context to myself when I'm using those sounds. And so I'm thinking about those as well, like where the sounds came from and what they remind me of in my own sort of travels, you know, uh, going around the world, performing and composing and teaching. And, uh, so that's kind of where the the title pathways comes from.
0: So, the sounds come from your own library and then how you're processing them is also from your own code in Mac. So basically everything that you're doing is sort of handmade, hand tailored to you as a performer.
1: Yeah, that's correct. And that's been my uh, direction for my performances uh, for, for about a decade now.
0: And um, it's always improvisational. Like every time that you get up on the stage, it's improvisatory.
1: Um, With these types of performances, yes. I do other shows that are a bit more planned, like I I work a lot with contemporary dance. And with those shows, then we would have kind of uh, these scenes figured out. Um, And then I would, you know, I'd have certain, uh, sometimes pre improvised bits that I'll slide in there, but then I'm also processing them and adding new stuff uh, as well. So then those ones are more set. So the dancers have a structure, but then I'm also messing with them. So, um, so it, it's kind of like a starting point for all my creative sort of practices at the moment. Like if they're totally improv shows like this one, then, you know, it's really freestyle. If it's something more planned, like a dance performance or something, I'll, I still like the improvisatory aspect. And the dancers I work with are really, you know, good improvisers and into that know keeping it fresh and then I also do fixed media pieces Uh, but then my process for those has been to improvise generate sounds and then uh, you know edit them in a in a uh, in an editing program into a piece so then uh, there is that uh, improvisatory kind of foundation for those works too
0: nice so it's a really big part of what you do
1: yeah, yeah, has been for quite a while now.
0: So how do you communicate journey and travel through sound, tangibly speaking?
1: Um, in this piece, um, like some of the sounds that I have available are soundscapes, like just, uh, you know, that I've gathered in places. And so I think my approach will be to kind of start with a place and then abstract it and then go into some, you know, little tangent somewhere
2: and then (laughs) come
1: back to a real place again and kind of create this sort of paths between the places. That's just my sort of game plan at the moment. So,
0: and does the physicality of your performance, do you think that aids in conveying these themes or at least for this particular performance where you're aiming for um, connectivity and pathways in place?
1: Um, because
0: I know you're working with a gestural controller do you think that will that yeah. aids in that theme?
2: Mm,
1: I just like the performability of having a, like I use an accelerometer uh, with a button on it that I can you know have things change or add a little bit of variation to things just by moving it around um, I think my idea with that is to you know, kind of add this extra element of performability that there's something that I'm doing other than clicking on my mouse right? <laughs> uh, in order to add variation to things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, and I kind of reprogram my max patch every time. And so it depends on the show what I'm varying with the parameters of the accelerometer. So, uh, so yeah, it kind of depends on the show with that.
2: So the
0: gestural controller is not something that requires you to make sort of big, grand movements or anything? It's a little more subtle than that?
1: Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah, the way I've been using it. Um, It's not like, uh, you know, it's not wired to notes or something like this where you're really making big changes. It's more um, parameters of the sounds that I'm processing, Mm -hmm. and then I'm making, you know, little increments, or um, it, it adds a certain amount of finesse to the show where I can control some aspect of the sound just by moving my hand a little bit. Right. Um, so it, yeah, it's just different than using the mouse, what you get out of it. So uh, yeah.
0: And what have you found to be the most effective controller for your mode of performance? Is it this accelerometer?
1: Well, I'm still working on that part. That's uh, <laughs> something I'm exploring at the moment is, uh, is these accelerometers that I've acquired. And uh, and then figuring out, like, is this something, you know, how can I use this with the type of you know sound pieces that I'm making? And how do I, you know, make that work with the sort of performability and um, this, I don't know, musicality, although whatever you want to call that, you know, how it how it affects the way things sound. So this is actually what I'm going to be working on over the next bunch of months. Um, I've been working with these sensors with dancers and having them affect video and and aspects of the sound. But uh, I also want to incorporate that into my own sound performances more. So I'm thinking about it, you know. It's
0: evolving. (laughs) Sounds good. It's
1: evolving. Yeah. And who knows, you know, what other doodads might get in there. So uh, (laughs) uh, I I teach um, interactive art. And sound art. So I am pretty familiar with, you know, the software and the hardware. And so it's a matter of building something for myself that I like. So let's see.
0: That's nice. You don't have to order it somewhere and hope that it fits your needs. You can just build your own doodad.
1: Yeah, which is part of the fun. but Also, <laughs> it takes some time, right? So <laughs> of
0: course, of course. Um, so you described Pathways as a piece that surfs across various genres of sound art. Um, is polystylism genre bending sort of a big part of your practice?
1: Mm, I'm just a diverse kind of guy, I think. <laughs>
2: um,
1: I, I've been creating sound art and electronic music and ambient music for for quite many years. Uh, I guess more than 30 now. Um, and so I've just had, you know, all these experiences in with different sort of musics and sound art and and whatnot and so then all these have some you know influence in what I do so uh so depending on my shows like sometimes they're very ambient and quiet and I throw in a lot of um uh, field recording sounds and stuff like that then other times they're really noisy and like just complete distorted (laughs) madness and uh (laughs) And that's okay too. It just depends on the context and and the moment and these types of things. And I kind of pull from all those things depending what I'm up to.
0: So you're just an so, avid uh, consumer of various genres yourself.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and generator of <laughs> these things too. <laughs> so um, yeah, I just yeah, I've never I don't limit myself uh, as far as you know what I can pull from for inspiration. Or, or what I'm doing. Um, I think just uh, I've established, you know, with my own sort of creative career that, you know, I, I do lots of different things and people are happy with, with the shows, you know. <laughs> they don't go to my show expecting, okay, this is going to be all, you know, completely ambient drone. Um, they go knowing that they're going to get something that's going to touch on Some different, you know, subgenres of experimental music, and whatever they're going to get, it's going to be something that's going to take them on a, you know, on a ride somewhere.
2: That's exciting.
0: I I feel like audiences appreciate a little bit of surprise.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, why not? (laughs) Yeah. So keep them uh, enjoying.
0: Exactly. Uh, One thing I noticed is that a lot of the documentation of your works is accompanied by really compelling photographs. And so you're using some gestures in your performance in terms of um, the controller. So I thought these two things might be connected. How important is the visual aspect and kinetic aspect in your work?
1: It really depends on the shows. Um, I don't know which photos you've seen, but uh, sometimes I have like uh, um, like um, objects on stage that are met, metal or something, and then they they have uh, like contact. Microphones on them and things Mm -hmm. so then I really can you know throw them around or bow them if they're metal sheets or uh, Or what have you and and perform in a more kind of a physical way Um, and Sometimes you know when I'm working with dance, you know, then you know everyone else is moving so sometimes I do some movement on stage and uh, kind of join in that part of the performance so um, it depends on the show and the context and, and, uh, and the moment. But uh, I, I, like, I like to uh, have some movement. Uh, I always enjoy those shows where I'm actually, you know, dragging something around or banging on it or, or <laughs> what have you. They're always good fun. Um, so, yeah, it, it depends. But, uh, yeah, it's a nice part of the performance when it happens for sure.
0: So for a Sean Pinchbeck show, it might be handy to have a video recording as opposed to just the audio.
1: It sometimes helps, yeah. Yeah, and actually for this show, I think I'm going to do some video as well. Um, I've been playing around with not only doing live improvised sound, but live improvised video as well.
2: Oh. And
1: uh, so I have, again, my own Max patch that I've written uh, to do video processing and mixing. It's quite simple at the moment, but thinking about it more and more. And uh, and it has some interaction where it reacts to the sound uh, that's happening. And uh, so then it creates kind of a, a connected visual with the sound in that way. Um, and then also I'm mixing different visual images together and, and processing them and distorting them and stuff on the fly, which is quite tricky doing both audio and video at the same time
0: I imagine
1: I I feel like I must be crazy but (laughs) uh but I'm trying
0: Amanda, you're one of the composers featured on the first evening concert of the Gathering of Canadian Sound Art, which is a sound art caucus jointly presented by the Independent Media Arts Alliance and New Adventures in Sound Art. But you're not just a sound artist. Your practice is very multidisciplinary. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself as an artist and the path or paths that have led you to create in so many disciplines.
3: Sure. Um, That's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought that we would start
0: off light, you know.
3: Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um yeah, I work across uh, many different disciplines. A lot of what um drives or dictates the my medium of choice usually is the subject matter, and I try to just make myself open um to following where it takes me. So, um I have training in photography, experimental film, contemporary dance, um Sound is something I'm not formally trained in. It's more something that I got interested in and started learning and trying to learn from other people as much as possible. Um, And, yeah, so I... This project in particular is uh, about the Radio Canada International Shortwave Towers that were located in Sackville, New Brunswick, where I lived. And so it's taken me through many uh, disciplines. It started out with... uh, a radio sync, uh because I was uh I'd heard that local people in the area heard the radio through their sink and I was <laughs> Yeah, and apparently it's a real thing. And I was jealous because my sink didn't play the radio. Um, And I wanted, you you can't just go buy a Sony Sinkman. So uh, I took the schematic for a Foxhole radio and tried building it out of plumbing. So in 2000, I think 2008, 2009, every paycheck I'd go and buy another 12 feet of copper pipe um, and built this pretty big long sink that was meant to um, function as a radio trying to build a radio with plumbing and no uh, electronic components whatsoever so I was kind of part sculpture part sound part performance and it's such a small town that I became this kind of town character with my radio sink and so (laughs) yeah people would stop me on you know at the grocery store at the cafe and be like have you heard the radio in your sink yet? And then they would start offering me their stories about hearing it in their fridge or their toaster. And so I started carrying a sound recorder to record these stories because they were incredible, which then led me to make a film, which has just started uh, playing at festivals um, a few weeks ago, actually called specters of shortwave. And it's a two hour uh, experimental documentary about those radio towers. And when they, After I started filming, they announced they were tearing them down, so I filmed the demolition. But in the meantime, uh, while I was working on the film, I really became obsessed with the sound of the towers. So I built contact microphones, and there was about a two-year period between when they stopped transmitting to when they tore them down. So because they were no longer um, operating as high-voltage, um, I was able to go on the site and clamp my microphones onto the towers. And so I have an extensive library of contact microphone recordings of those towers that I used in the film soundtrack, but now I'm using for a lot of other um, performances and installations, including, including the one I'll be presenting in, in Toronto at the Gathering of Canadian Sound Art. Um, that piece is um, part of a larger body of work called Requiem for Radio, And Requiem for Radio has five parts to it. So one of them, which I'll be presenting on Thursday night, is called Requiem for Radio Pulse Decay, where using a theremin um, run through uh, some programs, it triggers the contact microphone recordings of those towers as well as images of them. So it's essentially like playing the ghosts of the radio towers with radio waves and then there's a few other projects that kind of expand on that. Um, Sculpturally building a scale model of the site. It's uh, Requiem for Radio New Dead Zones. It's a 50-foot wide, 26-foot deep, uh, 12-foot high scale model of the site with capacitive sensors where viewers can touch the scale model of the site and trigger those sounds as well. So there's, um, yeah, it's taken me through all sorts of... uh uh, disciplines, all the, all on the same, same subject. I just try to be open and let it uh, take me where it will. And um,
0: yeah. So you found a, a ton of inspiration in this RCI shortwave site.
3: Yeah, yeah. And that's not even, I haven't even met, there's like photo series I've done. I got my climbing certification. I climbed two of the towers um, and made some art about that. I collected artifacts from the site and made sculptural works. One of them is called um, Radio Towers Like Wind Chimes, where I hang six 10-foot-long sections of the radio towers from the ceiling of the gallery. I've only shown it twice because it requires an art gallery with a 20-foot ceiling that can handle like the weight of six 200-pound radio tower chimes. <laughs> Maybe but a bit I- of a
0: tall order
3: yeah, yeah, kind of I might have finished the run of that one because it's like, yeah, it's I hang them each one from one piece of aircraft cable. And so even though they're big, heavy metal industrial um, objects or artifacts, they I try to hang them as delicately as possible so that they look like wind chimes. And then I hang speakers among them. And one time I did it with um rear video projection.
0: that sounds amazing. Does this happen often in your practice where you you find this sort of endless source of inspiration for your creativity?
3: Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, before the Radio Tower project, I had a series called Last Days of Snow, and it was all about the end of um, analog television broadcasts. And that one spawned several, like, uh, there were performances, there was video installations, there was quite a lot that happened with last days of snow. And interestingly, shortwave actually goes over AM and so did analog television. So those two, it was not my plan, but those two wound up following nicely on each other. And now I'm embarking on a series of works about water and I thought, finally, I'm doing something other than radio waves. I was like, oh, water waves, waves, maybe this is my thing. <laughs>
0: Your entire body of work is just going to be completely cohesive. That's, that's pretty good.
3: <laughs> that's kind of nice how it's working out that way. Um, so I had to ask, do you
0: have, you must have an emotional or philosophical attachment to the site after working so extensively with it and around it?
3: Yeah, it's, um, I, I think I, I wound up being, the emotional attachment developed gradually, and then I was surprised at how intense it was. I mean, initially it was more of, I thought, I thought my initial um, relationship with the site was purely, you know, scientific or objective. I was fascinated by the scientific phenomenon of um, what's called external rectification, which is the principle explaining how you hear the radio in your sink or your fridge or your toaster. So I was fascinated by that and the history of the site and how it worked. But the more I worked, I think it was actually through the contact microphone recordings uh, because I spent so many hours out there alone. Um, I mean, I did 48 days of filming about nine or 10 of those. I had a crew of two or three people, but a lot of the times I was alone and then I didn't even count how many days I went sound recording. Cause that was all, a lot of that was done by myself with the contact microphones. And, um, so being out there alone and clamping microphones onto the radio towers and you hear, when you take the headphones off, you don't hear anything. Well, you hear the wind and the crickets and the birds. But when you put the headphones on, you hear these beautiful drones. And it was almost like hearing a heartbeat. You know, I felt like I was hearing something very special. And even though I knew it was purely mechanical and, uh, you know, it's 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 science, it's natural, it's part of the physical world, there was something really kind of beautiful about it and intimate and eventually each of the 13 towers you know they had their own sounds which I started equating with voices it was like each tower had their own voice and they started developing their own to me personalities maybe I was going a little crazy from being in the (laughs) the hot sun with no sunscreen that could have been it but I quickly anthropomorphized them I mean I didn't really think that they had uh, personalities but it felt that way emotionally. So when the demolition happened, it really—I uh, was surprised at how much it, it, uh, it hit me when the first one fell. I mean, it didn't hit me; it didn't fall. Off, obviously, <laughs> I was standing a ways back, filming, but the just my heart jumped in my chest when it hit the ground, and it was like, "Whoa, okay, this is it. It's really, it's really over." And um, and then when the last one fell as well, it was. Uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty heavy. Um, well, I was going to ask you if
0: you knew that they were sort of demolition-bound before you started recording, and, you, and it sounds like you didn't. So you sort of ended up recording a piece of sonic history, which I think we're all for the better for. And how important do you think it is that we preserve pieces of sonic history?
3: I think it's very important. I mean, to me, it seems... Uh, recording the sounds of those towers and I mean the towers themselves, not just the radio that they broadcast was just as important as recording the images. Um, the images obviously are important, but a lot of people have photographed and filmed those towers before because they're quite iconic on the marsh. And in terms of the radio uh, programs that they broadcast, obviously there's archives and recordings of that because you know either the people making the broadcasts or people who like the programs can record them. But those contact microphone recordings of the towers and then also the field recordings of the, the wind in them and the, the birds and the crickets around them, uh, what it sounded like at night... Those, those are sounds that not everyone could access because when they were operating, it was a high voltage site you, with a lot of um, RF radiation. You couldn't just go on there. So the, that two year window that I had access to the site um, when they were no longer transmitting was really this kind of precious privilege to be able to go and hear these sounds. And so I think that recording them was important because it allows other people to hear them and kind of bear witness and develop a relationship they wouldn't have otherwise had access to. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And I think people will be thankful that they have access to this type of recording. And I know earlier you mentioned that in some of the pieces that you've worked with, with the Requiem for Radio, there is a ghostly feeling to them. I'm wondering if there's any elements of the piece sonically that are reminiscent of a Requiem.
3: Um not in pulse decay yet. Um in so the Requiem for Radio, there's five parts. There's Pulse Decay, which I'll be presenting uh in, on Thursday night. Uh solo performance for theremin, uh audio and image. Um then there's New Dead Zones, which is the uh installation of the scale model with the 13 towers and capacitance sensors that people can play. Um Radio Cowers is an instrument I'm building referencing the cows that lived around the towers. Um, uh, deviant trend deviant receptions is a revisiting of the radio sync to make it work and then finally the fifth piece uh requiem for radio full quiet flutter that one will have elements of a requiem that one is being presented in next june in moncton and that's a performance using the new dead zones installation which is the scale model of the towers the pulse decay the radio camera so all those other elements will be combined into a performance where i'm definitely hoping to incorporate elements of actual um at least one historical requiem but also to to work with the requiem format um in constructing uh that performance and that's probably going to be about an hour long performance it's in development now um i've working um now all of a sudden brought on board a a new collaborator, Martin Marie from Montreal, who's a composer and expertly adept at programming and electronics. And we have similar aesthetic ideas and are working well together. So we're kind of conceiving a lot of the full quiet flutter piece um, together as, as it will be presented in June.
0: Fantastic. And so I've listened to some of the excerpts of, I'm not sure if it was this piece or just other parts of the broader re- requiem for radio, but there's a. I heard a lot of low frequencies and sounds that you really feel in your guts. And the result is, as a listener, you feel very much enveloped by the sound. Is that the sort of feeling that you were going for?
3: Yeah, yeah, it was. And actually, if you've heard those sounds online, they've probably changed since then. <laughs> I've taken the source uh, contact microphone recordings, and they went through two stages one, when I was working on the film, um, after finishing the sound mix, I still had another day or two left at uh, Studio Prim in Montreal, and I was collaborating with uh, Bruno Belanger, who was um, a sound mixer, but we collaborated on the sound design as well. And so I told him, I was like, well, I have this other piece, Requiem for Radio, where I want to use these uh, contact microphone recordings. And so because there's 13 towers, it worked perfectly to create that. It's amazing that there's, you know, 13 notes in a chromatic scale so um, Bruno is able to, you know, we were working with like some hum remover filters uh, backwards to uh, zero in on uh, some fundamental frequencies to assign uh, musical notes to each tower. So it creates a chromatic scale. And then um, working with Martin, like, you know, like a year later, um, he's kind of had some, I guess, some room to to play with the sounds as well and to pull out. Uh, some of the more percussive sounds and the mechanical sounds from the wires and the rattling on the tower. And so now those two have been combined. So in the performance I'll be presenting in Toronto, instead of just triggering one sound of each tower, it'll be simultaneously triggering two sounds. One being the um, processed sound with the the note uh, as part of a chromatic scale, more of a tone. And then the other one being the more percussive mechanical sound of the wind acting upon the um the wires the hooks the all the the mechanical elements that rattle, so the sounds have become much more complex and uh, musical, but I still want to have that deep um rumbling, haunting feeling coming from them, and I hope that that's being achieved
0: <laughs> from what I heard absolutely um Looking at some of your broader work, I noticed that a sense of home and nostalgia seems to be present in some of your sound artworks, for sure. Can you talk a bit about that?
3: That's interesting. I never thought of it that way. Um, Yeah, I'm interested a lot in uh, memory, for sure. I'm definitely interested in uh, memory and mnemonic devices and how we use um, film, photography, audio recordings, etc., to to almost hold on to our memories or to replace the need for remembering things. I think sometimes we rely too heavily on photos and home movies. Um, for me, sound uh, was also a way to, in how, how would I say, it, to kind of enliven the mnemonic devices. That's not really the word I'm looking for. but <laughs> um, And when I was in Vancouver for a while, I would... Um, I, for, Actually, no, when I lived in Halifax, I stopped taking pictures of friends and family for a while because I was a photographer and it felt like work and it just felt artificial. So what I did instead was I just saved all of my voicemails Um, and then from time to time, you know, take a long hot bath and listen to them. And it's amazing to listen to voicemails that were left, you know, five, six, ten years ago. Uh, There's something different that's captured in sound that's not captured in photos. And discovering... Like when my grandmother passed away, in the basement there was an old reel-to-reel tape recorder with all sorts of quarter, uh, reels of quarter-inch tape from 1966. And there were recordings of family sing songs, of uh, my aunts and uncles playing with the tape recorder when they were kids. Oh, uh, wow. It was just this amazing discovery. And that stuff it doesn't come through in photos. And so sonically, in terms of memory and a sense of home, I think – I think, in terms of a sense of home, I'm more interested in the idea of memory and what what's what's kept and what's lost in audio versus image, and
0: uh, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, now, this question I, I am particularly interested in because I'm an Atlantic Canadian and I find there to be a difference in in my medium, which is more classical music. But do you find that there are any stylistic or philosophical markers of the aesthetics, you know, working in Atlantic Canada, as opposed to Vancouver, as you mentioned, or somewhere like Toronto?
3: Um, yeah, definitely. Um, I think that in Atlantic Canada, well, there's um, a much smaller new media scene. I mean, there are artists working in new media and electronics, but definitely not as many compared to when I lived in uh, Vancouver and Amsterdam. Uh, I remember in Vancouver, you know, there was a big community of, of, you know, electroacoustic music and, you know, electronic arts and interactive arts. Out here in Atlantic Canada, you're a lot more hard pressed to go find, to, to find that stuff. It does happen. Uh, there's a few artists run centers. I used to run a music festival that would uh, program uh, electroacoustic concerts and uh, other experimental music stuff. Uh, but yeah, I think for me, the, in terms of stylist stylistically, I'm not sure if I want to pronounce myself on what the the regional style is. <laughs> Fair but enough. Yeah, but I would definitely say one of the things I find hardest living out here is... Um, Access. I mean, there is a very vibrant art scene, and it's excellent, and there's a lot of really strong programming, but in terms of new media, interactive arts, and electroacoustic composition, it is happening, but not as much in larger centers, and as an artist, um, you know, wanting to work that way, it's... uh, it's good to go, be able to go and see and hear stuff, you know. When you're in a big city, you can go to a lot of concerts and you can, you know, go have a beer or a coffee with a, a fellow artist who works in the same discipline and bounce ideas off each other and get excited about it. But when you live in a small region, um, like right now, I'm actually living outside of the city of Moncton in an area called Lutz Mountain, so I'm surrounded by woods, you know. <laughs> so it's not it's not as accessible. So I, for me, it's important to be able to travel as much as possible so I can go and hear what other people are doing.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's where something like a sound art caucus really comes in handy. And the concert is part of that larger gathering discussing the sound art climate in the country. Um, So broadly speaking, um, what excites you the most about what's happening in Canada in terms of sound art and media art and new media?
3: I think right now I'm excited about the possibility of organizations um, organizing themselves (laughs) to to collaborate together and support one another because the country is so broad. And yes, we do have some very active large urban centers like Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver. Most of the country is not in a large urban center. And there are some very exciting festivals happening in remote and rural areas. But um, speaking from experience, it can be hard to organize stuff like that in a, in a silo. And so, what I'm excited about, especially for this upcoming um, caucus and sound meetings, is to get all of these organizations from across the country together to meet each other and to talk about ways that um, collaborations can be possible. You know, if for instance, if a festival in one province is bringing an international artist, and they're in touch with a few other small festivals, you know that it makes it easier to organize a tour you know once you get the artist over from europe or up from the states once they're there then it's you know more affordable and easier to manage if a bunch of you know if, if they hit a bunch of festivals going across the country so it's good for the artists coming to canada but also very good for the festivals if we can work together to collaborate and keep each other in the loop about who's programming what or what's going on and then also exchanges You know, uh, one festival sends an artist over here. Another one sends an artist over there. So I think, yeah, I'm most excited about the possibility of collaboration and support across the country. Awesome.
0: Well, Amanda, I'm really looking forward to the performance on Thursday. Thank you so much for talking with me today.
3: Thank you so much. And I should probably also mention that uh, this piece that I'm showing Thursday, Requiem for Radio, uh, I spent quite a while working on it at the wave farm last fall uh, during a residency there. So I wouldn't be where I am with this piece if it wasn't for the support of the wave farm.
0: So you're in Stockholm right now. Can you tell me what you're doing there?
4: I'm doing a residency at this uh, studio called Ems, Electron Music Studio, or something like that. <laughs> uh, uh, so I'm working on, um, they have a very old Buchla synthesizer over there, like a vintage Buchla. Mm-hmm. So I'm working on, uh, I don't know, new material and uh, um Material for an album and maybe some new performances as well. Oh, amazing. So do you work a lot
0: with vintage and retro pieces of sort of uh, sonic machinery?
4: Uh, I wish. Uh, <laughs> but since most of these machines are very expensive and uh, I work with hardware, as you have noticed with like soft revolvers. Um, and so, like, I have to travel with a lot of gear already that is not necessarily uh, music-related. So for me, it's more like a composition tool. So it's nice to have access to those machines. And I have a, a, a little analog synth at home, but like, really, my um, I don't have that much of that type of equipment. But to be here and have the chance to work on the on the booklet is really amazing.
0: And so your piece, Soft Soft Revolvers, rather, is being presented by New Adventures in Sound Art on the upcoming concert, Generating Electro. So how does your piece fit into the theme of generation, the kinetic aspect of creating sound through movement?
4: Well, I mean, of course, what I'm doing is very physical, and it's about um, finding interesting interaction between gesture and sound. And I guess I think Martin Messier is also playing at that event, right? That's correct. Yes. Okay. So I guess we have like at least we don't have we don't have the same conclusion, but I think we have the same uh, maybe uh, initial purpose, which is like to find ways to present music visually and physically that are interesting. Uh, in my case, I I am very inspired uh, by the instrumentalist movements. I guess mm-hmm. it sounds pretty straightforward or uh, obvious you would say but uh, there was really a disconnect with electronic music uh with like all of this tradition of uh, instrumental gestures uh so in my case it was a bit like uh feeding on this tradition and finding ways to uh put it back in electronic music context awesome
0: i noticed that too actually as a instrumental performer that the sort of personal and physical you know, uh, composer or performer being in the space is something that some electroacoustic music really misses. Um, and I know it's difficult to describe, but maybe you could describe for our listening audience the aspects of motion and movement specifically in this piece.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm playing with four big spinning tops that are made out of acrylic. Uh, the design is very simple. So it's like, I don't have a cone shape. It's really just like big disks with handles. They're about uh, 25 centimeters in diameter. So you can imagine like how big the objects are. I have four of them on a table. And I have gyroscopes inside, which are sensors for the speed of rotation. And all of the data is sent uh, wirelessly to my computer uh, via Wi-Fi. So basically at all time, I know how fast the tops are spinning, and how the performance goes, I just like, you know, create soundscape, depending on the speed of rotation of the tops. And um, I can do also like very idiomatic uh, scratch DJ solos on the top, that's very fun, because the tops look a bit like turntables. <laughs> so I have a wide variety, I would say, of like different gestures that I can play with.
0: So this... Uh, performance it features you as the performer do you often engage as a
4: performer in your work uh most of the time so far i mean um uh, I did some fixed tape compositions, like just for speakers, uh, but I was also playing a lot of guitar before, so, I mean, this is the same kind of setup where you perform your own music, or at least you're, you're a performer. Uh, and when I started doing more performance in electronic music, it was always me on stage. Uh, not to say that it's going to be... Uh, the case in all my performances but so far yes i have a new a new performance that i've started started to tour as well which is called the autopsy glass and in that case also it's like a solo performance and i'm on stage and i'm playing with wine glasses and breaking a lot of wine glasses (laughs) okay that sounds messy and fun (laughs) very messy yes
0: (laughs) do you find there to be a stronger sense of connection to a piece or project when there's a performative aspect even if it's not your own like do you feel more engaged with um this type of performance when there's a person on stage
4: um it really varies um i guess i i like variety in a concert or in a show so it's nice to see how people can imagine going outside of the box and this is what i realized in festival like uh like, maybe I'm from a zapping generation, but, like, you know, just a, a, a concert of only, let's say, acoustic music or a concert of only audiovisual screen-based material, then I could, like, find it less interesting. But, like, I've seen so many um, propositions for how to rethink the audiovisual stage that, uh, yeah, I'm just, like, looking for, for different solutions, I guess.
0: Okay. And as you mentioned, soft revolvers does involve the use of spinning tops that you've created, and I read that you are interested in the possibilities of sort of everyday and familiar objects. So what is it about these types of objects that draws you to their sound world?
4: Mm -hmm. Uh, In my case, I would say, like, it it doesn't have anything to do with nostalgia. I mean, of course, there's some aspect of nostalgia that are fun about the spinning tops, like, let's just think about the... Uh, I think it was like around the fifties that they were popular. You could pump the spinning top, and then it would actually make music. So like all these relationship could come into place. But for me, it's more about like, you know, how you know, how you know the behavior of an object so well that you forget about it. Like when the tool you're using just becomes like uh, forgotten. And in the case of spinning tops, it was interesting because most people have played with spinning tops before, so um, they could anticipate whatever I was going to do on stage and that's very interesting for me because if you're presenting new instruments it's all there's always like a conditioning period where the 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 listener um, has to understand what you're doing and how you interact with the object you're you're playing with but in this case of the spinning top I think that this like this time was like much faster because people could already know what like, what the performance would be like a little bit because they, they've played with spinning tops before. And same thing with the wine glasses that I'm using. Um, As I said, it's less, it's not necessarily to, um, to evoke uh, like um, everyday life situation, but more to play with this like very physical relationship that we can have with fragile objects uh, we're like we're we're afraid to break them, so we're already stressed out when we just <laughs> wear glasses almost. So it was more. I guess for me, it's always more on the like physical behavior side of things that I'm interested in objects.
0: And you think that there's a psychological response from the audience when you use these types of objects?
4: I hope so. I mean, uh, in different cir- circumstances, like you know, people people have told me that it made them think about different things or like you know they were a bit stressed because the tops were on the side of the table but obviously like you know what I propose is just my side of things so uh, people in the audience do whatever they want with it but yeah this is my idea like just trying to find things that will trigger physical response in the in the audience. So I
0: heard an excerpt online of this piece, and I was given a sense of almost uh, dance music Um, from the audio, but also from the visual, you know, turntables have that association now, so DJing. Is this type of association something you wanted to work with in Soft revolvers?
4: Oh, definitely, because... um... As I started to do prototypes with the spinning tops, uh, like the, the the final prototype, I realized looked really like turntables. So I wouldn't say that that idea was there from the start, but definitely I decided to work with it. So like, if you think about turntables, obviously you're going to think about uh, I don't know hip hop culture and dance hall c- culture. Uh, so I definitely wanted to integrate those elements. Um, but depending on the videos that you've seen. Um, the performance is definitely, there's a narrative to it, there's a progression. And so the dance elements only come a bit uh, later on in the piece. Oh, or sometimes yeah, okay. sometimes I'm using also dance connoted um, sounds like hand claps or like, I don't know, uh, bass drums and different synths that will sound very dancy. But then I'm playing them in a totally chaotic manner. So like, it's this. I like this ambiguity between like something that will be a steady tempo and then like something completely chaotic. So I go in and out of those uh, those states.
0: Is that a world that you're involved with as well? Sort of DJing your dancehall music.
4: Uh, I've never DJed, but definitely like now, especially now, I play in more and more festivals. Uh, where it's like mostly dance music oriented so I guess I guess I I, I like my music to be sort of always in the in between <laughs> but I mean, like just yeah okay you're referencing all these cultures but at the same time you're doing something a bit like experimental at the same time and uh, I mean there's there's definitely a space for this kind of music even in dance music festivals like obviously people won't dance throughout but like people are really um, hungry for that kind of weird experiments
0: yeah i was going to say i think that if i went to a dance music festival and there was sort of a wacky experimental piece i'd be really happy about it and like a pleasant surprise type of way
4: i was in Mutec mexico recently and i saw like just an amazing performance by uh, Pedro manafeld uh and like it was that kind of thing where it was just like very experimental very raw and then like once in a while he would like give you a 4/4 four, four beat and then everybody was just like yeah you know but, i love and, that and then in between it was just like this weird chaotic mess of amazing uh, synthy sounds and it was like really awesome
0: so in that way the um the sort of regular dance beat becomes like a cadence or a into the if you think of it as music it's like sort of these arrival points where everybody in the audience even if they don't say it they can think
4: yay yeah, sort of, but like, yeah, that's it. Like you, you, you make it. Uh, you make people wait for it. You know, it's like, oh, maybe it's getting there. Maybe it's getting there, and then eventually, when you hear it, you're very happy. But like, yeah, it's not the only point of the music to keep a four-four beat. So, of course. So,
0: um, I noticed with your piece, it seems like it's been making its way around the globe quite extensively.
4: So, what do you credit to this piece's success? Uh, um. The weird interface. I don't know. <laughs> it's um, yeah. I think like a, it's a it's a nice object uh, that uh, in the end worked out good on the different aspects. I think like everything is really well integrated, like the sound and the visuals and the interaction and everything. And it's just like a party a party piece. Also, like it it makes me happy when I play it, and I think that's sort of contagious for people in the audience. And, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just like, it's a very fun piece. And uh, yeah, and I think like the coherence of all the elements is maybe like, is in part due because I did like all of the aspects. But I mean, I'm sure like, if I worked in collaboration with other people, that could be the case also.
0: So Generating Electro is being presented by the Alliance Francaise, where your piece is being programmed alongside a work by uh, someone you mentioned earlier, Martin Messier, who you worked with on origami. So how do you see your and Martin's practices being related, and, and why have you worked together in the past and now?
4: Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, it's, it's a bit uh, confusing because origami was a piece that I did with Martin Marier, which is another guy. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I've never worked with Martin Messier, but uh we've been touring a lot together because like um yeah we play in similar festivals so we end up like being together a lot but uh, Martin Messier collaborated a lot with another composer called Nicolas Bernier and they did like a duo work together so this is a bit different.
0: Okay sorry my bad there. <laughs> no worries. And um, so did your designation as like a francophone artist affect your practice at all?
4: Um um i would say that like coming from montreal affect my practice a lot uh, there's a lot of people in montreal doing these kinds of performances and i feel like more and more like people try stuff with new interfaces and different uh, stage setups so it's like a really vivid community i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing well no it's but- that's great but as you can imagine, like, otherwise worldwide is, just like, English, English, English. And uh, I'm not, like, I'm not specifically referring to my French heritage. But I feel like, you know, this, I don't know, the cultural... Um, uh, Montreal is very culturally, uh, yeah, vivid city. So I, I, I don't know if it's due to, like, the mix of French and English and all of these cultures, like... Uh, Uh, Collaborating together, but uh, definitely it's a really nice city for what I'm doing.
0: So, the city in Montreal has like a scene that's very welcoming to your type of practice.
4: Yes, and also just a community where I can exchange with other people doing similar things, and just like people are, yeah, hungry for these kinds of things. (coughs)
2: Oh, <coughs> <coughs> Boooo <laughs> woooo
0: To making waves on WGXC. For more information about a gathering of sound art or other events in NASA's Sound Play series, check out nasa.ca. That's
2: N-A-I-S-A.ca. Thanks for listening.